Well, I uh, I actually was mindful enough to actually turn up the volume this time. Ah. I said to the I said to the internet I said internet. What are we watching today? I think this will be an interesting one to discuss. Uh, oh no no so so you say I'm Jason I don't say I'm Jason. Right. And you need to watch uh, Lupin. My verdict will be as dramatic as the film. So. Oh, Jesus Christ. Hello, this is Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Max. I'm Jason. And today we will be discussing the 1939 film Stagecoach, directed by John Ford, starring Claire Trevor, John Wayne, Andy Devine, John Carradine, Thomas Mitchell, Louise Platt, George Bancroft, Donald Meek, Burton Churchill, and Tim Holt. Oh, right. You must have read that from IMDb. I, it's the, look, that's what appears on the, the act, on the card, on the title card. Because uh, one of the interesting things about the film when you watch it is that uh, it says starring and then it just lists everybody. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and in the order that I just read them. Okay. Uh, Claire Trevor is top build. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, it makes at sense. The to- well, at the time, she was a bigger star than him. Okay. okay than John yeah. Wayne. Okay, yeah. Because this is John Wayne's breakout film. Yes, it is. Okay. And the first talking Western of John Ford, correct? Uh, it was, his, yes. It was his first Western since the 20s. Like he had made Westerns which were made in very kind of workmanlike fashion back in the silent era. And John Ford worked a lot in the silent era, as did John Wayne. But Ford had kind of, he really hadn't revisited the Western. And so in making this film, it was kind of a return to this old art form. Uh, And it was kind of controversial, actually. Going back to the Western or this Western in particular? Uh, Going back to the Western, um, John Ford in making this film, because actually to give a little background, uh, the American Western has always been a centerpiece of, of American cinema until pretty much contemporary times. There were a lot of silent westerns that were made. Then in the sound era, there were a lot of very cheap, we call them B-westerns. It's the white hat, black, black hat kind of uh, storyline. And those were made throughout the 30s. John Wayne appeared in a lot of those, but these were not major pictures. These were not the films that everyone went to see. And so in 1939, um, John Ford wanted to make a very serious, um, well-scripted Western with good characters and good dialogue and high drama. And it was something that that, um, no one really wanted to do. Uh, He had a hard time getting this movie made because Westerns were kind of seen as just kind of disposable escapist uh, fiction or film. And uh, sorry, something I'd read today was that uh, the Western had fallen out of fashion by the by the yes. Yes. So it was an interesting choice for Ford to return to to the Western. Well, he thought it was something that that actually um, would have some staying power. It's very interesting that um, um, David O. Selznick had originally agreed to produce the film and uh, he finally bowed out because he did not agree with John Ford that he wanted to cast uh, John Wayne. Yeah, there were. I did read that there were several several people in the running. Oh, Clark Gable wanted too much money. Well, Clark Clark people. Gable would have Clark Gable would have been the the actor of that decade. So Clark Gable would have been the best the biggest actor in Hollywood. So they finally settled on Walter Wanger, who was an independent producer who agreed to produce the film, but he didn't want Wayne either. Yeah, he wanted Gary Cooper, who was also a, a big name actor at the time, big, much bigger than Wayne. It wouldn't stay that way for very long. But Ford stuck to his guns so to speak, and insisted on John Wayne. Well, it, 
I mean, John does, uh, Wayne does a great job. Any, any other production notes? I did notice that it, I had never heard of the producer before. It didn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't, we didn't get like RKO fanfare. We didn't get any, any film producers that I, I recognize, you know, no Paramount. Well, uh, that. Right. Uh, well, it's kind of a side note. Um, now you have to look very closely because it's, uh, it's kind of buried in the credits. This film was distributed by United Artists. Okay. When we were growing up, United Artists was, uh, I mean, that was a, a company that you would see somewhat frequently. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were the they were the original company that released the James Bond movies. MGM bought them in the 80s, and then you would see the MGM UA uh, label. United Artists originally was a company that was created by actors. Charles Chaplin was one of them. There were several other big-name 20s actors and actresses who were uh, very involved in creating this company, United Artists, that was at the time was, was kind of a, an alternative to the studio system. A bit, um, a bit of a collective. Yes, very much so. And uh, and and really remained that way for many years, maybe until MGM bought them in 1979, 1980, 81. Okay. Um, but uh, so this was a film that was produced by Walter Wanger. I agree with you. I had never heard of him, but uh, it was distributed by United Artists. Okay. I have a lot of things roiling around in my head about this movie. I sort of regret now that we, by the time people hear this, they will have heard our ombre uh, mm-hmm. podcast and I sort of regret that we did ombre first and are doing stagecoach now uh, because you and I talked a little bit about how ombre seemed to be some kind of approach to stagecoach we got the yes. sense that Elmore yes. Leonard was making some kind of statement about stagecoach and me having never seen stagecoach I thought maybe he was injecting more socially aware commentary into the into the concept of stagecoach. And now I'm wondering if he just didn't update it a bit. Okay. I'm going to put this idea out there and I hope that everybody, I, I am kind of getting into our vertical a bit, but I hope everybody does go and see, take some time to watch this movie. Jason and I have been discussing John Ford's films for 20 years, haven't we? Easily, yeah. And I've kind of become of the opinion that Ford is one of our more subversive American filmmakers. You are, I I sense that you're going to go in a direction that I was planning to go. I agree. And now... No, no one in the modern era will look at a John Ford film and think he was progressive enough. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that he did everything right, but I do think that I get the sense that he was a filmmaker struggling with and trying to say important things about the American mythology, not just of the West, but of every of every part of it. And you, I, I sense this tension between saying things of meaning about American mythology and living in 1939. Yeah. How far can you go with this? And and I sense that a lot of the things that he wants to say is pretty subtle. It might go over the head of somebody who's just there for a rousing action piece, you know? Yes, yes. And so I just want to put that in everybody's head for now. Is there anything you want to say about that? I don't... Well, no, I mean, um, I, I've i come to see him that way as well. I do know that when John Ford was interviewed, he would be very cagey. Uh, whenever people would ask him questions, oh, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? He would kind of play dumb and he would say, well, I, I don't understand the question. He would act like that he was just the simpleton who, you know, oh, you know, you're like, I just shot this movie. What's wrong with you? But when you watch one of his films, you find that if if you if you take your fingernail and you kind of and you kind of scratch underneath all of the comedy and and, and all of the bits that are meant to just entertain the audience of 1939 or 1950 or whatever year the John Ford film was made. 2021. 
yeah, you suddenly find that he was actually very subtly trying to say something deeper, but he never did it overtly. The, no. the, the surface of his films is always the entertainment. But anyone that chooses to pay attention to a John Ford film and, and, and really spend time with it um, will be paid back immensely. I mean, that, it, it's... I don't know. I mean, I guess for a long time, I've been very fascinated that Akira Kurosawa, you know, the famous Japanese director who we, who we have discussed, um, was so enamored by by John Ford's art. But actually, I kind of wonder if John Ford's art is something that is difficult for us to look at because these are films made by an American director. And we were born here. We were raised in this culture. And so we kind of see it through the lens of everything that comes with being an American, you know, the, the, the guilt of our past and, and, and uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the dark parts of our history. When you watch a Kurosawa film, when we watch Japanese history unfolding before us, we don't have any of that. No, no. We are able, we are able to look at Kurosawa's art very objectively and rightly so. I, I would submit to you that I think that it's hard for us to look at Ford's art with an objective eye. Well, I, I, I think there's something to that. I, and probably this is the same for a Japanese uh, yes. person watching Kurosawa. Um, but it's hard uh, to, especially now, I think, given uh, the way we've kind of at least a lot more honestly come to terms with our history to not to not see some of the things that, that Ford was trying to do, trying to come to terms with that history in his films through art. Yes. You know, I, and I don't know if he had this idea as he was making movies. Uh, was he asking questions about like, how is this movie going to be seen in 50 years and 100 years? Is it going to be seen in 100 years? If he asked him, if he asked himself those questions, he didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I said about his interviews. I mean, Ford was very, he did not let people into his creative process process in, ter in terms of the story. Yeah. I mean, if you asked him, if you asked him about cinematography, he would tell you exactly what his style was like. But when it comes to character and um, his view of history, he he immediately just kind of shut down and he just shut interviewers down immediately. Yeah, I'm just going to say I'm going to suggest anyway that 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 he is being dishonest to interviewers in those moments. This is a guy who spent a lot of World War II crafting American mythology. That's true. I would submit that he understood that's what he was doing, though. Yeah, no, I think, and, you know, I you know that's that's why I I, I, mean, I, I I knew you would say something like that or agree with me in this moment. But, you know, I mean, he was a World War II photographer for the United States military. Yeah. Along with Houston and a few other guys. I think Houston was one of them. But, yes, he was. Uh, Capra and I can't. Yes. I can't remember the others. There's a there's an interesting Netflix documentary which I haven't watched called The Five Who Came Back, and it's about okay. it's about those those guys uh, going and uh, filming World War II as it happened. Yeah. Now backing up a little bit, you were just saying something about how we view Ford differently than we view Kurosawa. Yes. Um. And and then then we both agreed that probably if we were Japanese people watching Kurosawa, we would be having the same struggles. Yes. Now, visually, if somebody had told me while I was watching the opening credits of uh, Stagecoach that Kurosawa had directed it, I would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, I was struck by how similar their styles are and how glorious John Ford's compositions are. And this is before the wide, the wide aspect ratios that we have now. And before color, John Ford was really framing these, these every shot. When we see Monument Valley, it is composed so well in blacks and whites and grays. And I was just like, I was stunned at how impressed I was by this black and white photography. Yes. Uh, Yes. And of course, he would go on to even greater cinematography when he got the wider aspect ratio and, and color. But this is surprisingly a really fun film to look at. Just yes. From an artistic standpoint. So I suppose for the audience who's listening to us to see what we're saying, we should talk a little bit about the movie. It's particulars. Uh, if we must, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is kind of, this is not a very long film. It's pretty short, right? Yes. It's just It's just under an hour and a half, I think, like an hour and 20 yeah. minutes. It's a very efficient movie. Yes. The, the beginning opens up and we're starting to meet the players. Um, this is, uh, well, so we meet the players. I'll cut some of this out, obviously, because I just stumbled. Um, well, well it, um, it, it starts, just to kind of help you out a little bit, it starts off with a very quick exposition with the uh, with the U.S. Cavalry, where we understand that Geronimo and the Apaches are active in the area. Yep. And in fact, I believe the, the telegraph lines are down. Yep. Uh, this is a very quick scene, probably less than a minute, maybe 40 seconds, uh, in which we base The pacing of this movie is really, really good. We establish that there are political problems, political and military problems in the area. And then we immediately move to establish the uh, the characters that are going to be our, our companions throughout this journey. Exactly. So early on, the, the cavalry learns via telegram that Geronimo's jumped the reservation yes. and he's... Getting a, getting the Apache in a in a in a mood to attack, and that's what they're doing. They're attacking ranches and they're attacking military outposts. And uh, and we just get this. It's kind of a neat scene where some guy at a telegraph uh, station is like getting a telegraph from another military base, and is like, "What's it say?" And it's like, what, "What? Just one word, Geronimo." You know. And uh, Geronimo's our boogeyman in this in this film. And uh, and uh, we also see that there's a Cheyenne scout, uh, a, a Union Union soldier who's corroborating the stories that they're hearing all around. Uh, they anyway, point out, and they point out that the Cheyenne hate the Apache and that's why he can be trusted. So yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so military is worried. And from there we cut to, like you said, the people that we're going to meet in the town of, what's the town that they, we, we land you know, I don't know if they ever um, state the town. I mean, uh, uh, Lordsburg is the place they're going. Yeah, and, yeah. and we hear that throughout the film. I'm not sure if they ever say what the town is that uh, that we begin at, but that's not really important because really the primary piece, the most important piece of real estate in this film is the stagecoach itself, it's which we see immediately because the very next moment we see the stagecoach roll into town, and you know they're going to they're have a break and they're going to get the they're going to get the you know the next group of passengers to take them on down the line. It's kind of neat. Like the, pulled by six horses and the, the stagecoach work in this movie is really kind of it fascinated me the whole time I watched it like one and a half times I watched about half of it again today but uh, the stagecoach driver is Buck is his name but he's played by Andy yes. Devine and I, I hate to say this to Jason and to you audience every time Buck spoke I kept thinking of the black hole <laughs> um, now the black hole is a movie made by Disney about a bunch of explorers uh, uh, surveying 
surveying a black hole, but Buck is the voice for one of the robots in the black hole. Yeah. The other robot is Roddy McDowell. That's all stuff that doesn't matter here, but I thought I'd share that with the audience. But anyway, uh, Buck is, uh, is, is our comedic relief throughout the film. He is. And, uh, he, he's, he's kind of that stereotypical character who, uh, in this case, he's got a job to do. He, he wants to do it well, but he's not really interested in, in sticking his neck out any more than he has to. He also seems to like a meal. Um, he does, he does. And he's distracted from that quite a bit. But, um, I mean, I, I think it's established very quickly that, that he also carries payroll. Yeah. Uh, so often when he's right, when he's driving the stagecoach, there's money involved, there's passengers involved, there's usually somebody's riding shotgun. And, uh, and... Well, he pulls into this new town, they're changing horses and they're getting new passengers and they're letting the passengers that are riding on through, uh, to they're going to let them stretch yes. their legs, get coffee or whatever. Um, and this is where we meet all of our players. We meet... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, initially, I believe uh, uh, Mrs. Mallory. Mrs. Mallory. She, uh, who, she's she's a, a, a army wife who's going not to Lordsville, I don't think. Not intentionally. She's going to stop along the way at one of the military bases to meet up with her husband. So that's the first lady we meet. She's from high society. She's from Virginia, we later learn. And she's a little peaked. Yeah. Uh, which we'll get to in a bit. So she's the first person we meet. And then the second person we meet is the gambler, I believe. Hatfield. Mr. Hatfield. Mr. Hatfield, played by an old Hollywood family. John Carradine. And uh, he wears a white hat. Yeah. And, and this is an interesting thing that I think Ford's doing here with this as well. The white hat is typically the hat the good guy wears in the Western period. More about that in a bit. So we meet him and he's very taken by Mallory. She's a she's a, she's a a genteel lady. He fancies himself as a Southern gentleman, right? Yes. And very, very obsessed is with, with the idea of the lady, right? Yes. So he's the guy we meet. This, the next guy we meet is a fine doctor, I believe. <laughs> Uh, in quotes. In quotes. A, a consummate professional, if, <laughs> if by professional we're referring to his drinking. But he is, I, Jason and I talk a lot about Ford, uh, and and we Jason mentioned earlier about, well, off, off mic, he mentioned that we always have a struggle with Ford and comedy. Yes. Because sometimes Ford interjects comedy, and we, we've always found it to be somewhat inappropriate. The doctor could have been that, but he is universally good throughout the movie. Doc Boone, I, and, and actually, I, I think I will speak for everybody on the planet. Doc Boone is the best character in this movie. <laughs> he really is. He yeah. really is. Um, um, he won an Academy Award for this, didn't he? I, and I I actually just learned that. I was I, I was surprised to learn that because I didn't know it, but because I know who Thomas Mitchell is. Thomas Mitchell, who plays Doc Boone, is one of the really great character actors in Hollywood history. If you just go to his IMDb page, uh, you will see a slew of just classic Hollywood films that he appeared in. Uh, this same year that he appeared in this, he he played Scarlett O'Hara's father in Gone with the Wind. Okay. So Thomas Mitchell, uh, uh, he's also in um, um, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he, he, you will find him almost anywhere if you watch old Hollywood films. But he steals the show in this movie. He really as, does. As but, the but, drunken doctor. But I have to yeah. back up a little bit. He, we meet him after we meet Dallas, as Dallas is being run out right. of town by the ladies of of justice and law, law and justice or whatever. I can't remember. What yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. There's a there's a woman who is being run out run out of town. Her name is Dallas. They never say what she is or why she's being run out of town. Smart viewers will realize that she's being run out of this town because she's a prostitute. Yes. And the the these ladies uh, who are the reason why she's being run out of town are the the women of peace and justice. I believe is what their what their little order is. And they're yeah. a bunch they're a bunch of kind of rude snooty religious uh, people. And this is my first inkling that Ford is saying something. Yes. Other than, uh, the, other than entertaining us. So as 
because Dallas is being run out of town and she's like, she's complaining to the sheriff and the sheriff is like, well, look, I gotta, like, you gotta go because they, I, they never really explained why she has to go, but somehow these women have orchestrated it that, that Dallas has to leave town. As she's leaving, we come upon Doc Boone being evicted because he can't pay his rent. And then he's like, he has a little drunken tirade where he references very well Homer and, and the Iliad. <laughs> and he, he takes his shingle, his doctor shingle off the, off the uh, wall of the, of the place where he was staying. And he was like, is this the face that launched a thousand ships from, from the shores of Ilium? Well, goodbye, Ellen. <laughs> hey, right. And Dallas sees Doc Boone and she sees a potential ally and she comes up to, yeah. comes up to, and this is, this is where I'm thinking that Ford wants to say something. She runs up to, to Doc Boone and he's like, she's like, do I have to go? Don't I have as much a right to live as anybody else? And Boone says, my dear lady, we are victims of that most terrible social ill, societal prejudice. Come, wear your indignity with pride with me. Well, and, and right, well, and, um, criticism of those women and absolutely motivations that drive them. When um, Doc throughout the film is very much, <laughs> if there can be such a thing, is kind of a drunken stoic. Yes. Uh, he, he's he's very much who he is. He passes judgment on nobody. Well, no, uh, he does pass judgment on one person. Uh, well, which we'll get to because actually yeah, we'll get to that because you are quite right about that. I, I actually watched this twice in preparation for this. And uh, yeah, and I noticed that moment that I think that you're referring to. But um, he he he's very realistic. He's Doc Boone is not is not somebody that is going to run for office and change anything. He's okay. I have to leave. <laughs> no, sorry, kid. It's not right. We're victims of this, but let's get on the stage. And uh, and they I mean they do become allies, and I think friends. I think that she looks up to him, and she 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 kind of turns to him as her confidant throughout the entire journey. And he leans on her very heavily later in the film. Yes, but so they get to the so so Doc leads her with some more dignity than I think she I think there's a, a, a I think she gains some strength by latching on to Doc there but one of the things I really liked is when Doc approaches the stagecoach and he says ah buck my shingle handle it with honor <laughs> And, and I mean, just Mitchell just inhabiting Doc Boone is really joyous to watch. So they get on the stagecoach and Doc Boone does not leave the town quietly. No, no um, he doesn't. So, so they get, so Doc the drunk and, and the prostitute get on the stage. Uh, they've also picked up a, a whiskey drummer, a guy who goes around with whiskey samples, who's also, oh, a, who's also. Isn't a, he a reverend? <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's what Boone thinks he is because he always calls everybody brother. And uh, <laughs> oh, but see, what's great is he corrects him. And I don't know if you notice this, but the rest of the movie he continues to call him Reverend. He does. Doc Boone. Uh, so earlier in the scene, I'm sorry, we, we've skipped ahead a little bit. Doc is getting kicked out, and he heads into the saloon, and he, he gets bums a free drink. Bums a free drink, and in another great scene, because he goes up to the bartender and he's like, Ah, Fred, look, I know over the years economically I haven't exactly been helpful to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking as one one friend to another. Anyway, in this conversation in the saloon, he meets a whiskey drummer, and uh, and they're both going on the same stage together. And and Doc really finds a fast friend in the guy who has a big case of whiskey. I don't know why Doc is like this, but he does seem to be dedicated to staying drunk all the time. You know? Yes, he, yes, he does. Anyway, so he's gonna sit. Uh, he he takes charge of the whiskey drummer's case after that. You may uh, remember. Uh, 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 yes, uh, Peacock, Mister Peacock. Peacock. Anyway, 
everyone gets and everyone gets his name wrong. They do, they do. It's Hancock <laughs> to everybody else. And, 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 Don, and Donald Donald Meek with amazing comic timing. Uh, uh, it's Peacock. Like yes. he, well, Donald Meek is the guy who plays the whiskey drummer, Mr. Peacock, and he is really stunning in this film too. As the straight man, absolutely. So anyway, they they get in the they all get in the uh, stagecoach, and it's that it's at that point Mallory starts to make her way to the stagecoach, and her friends are like, "Oh, you don't want to ride with her. You don't want to ride with that woman." And and in a little hint of what we'll get out of Mallory later on, she's like, "Well, it's not very far." I mean, she's judgmental at first, but yes, Mallory is a character who has a journey on this, who takes a journey on this, a character journey, I think. Well, you know, uh, maybe maybe we might we might have something to discuss there because there's uh, there's some moments to talk about that actually question whether or not Lucy Mallory ever changes, but we'll get to that. Yeah, but anyway, she's like, "Well, it's not that far," and uh, they get her on, and Mallory's friend is like, "Bye bye," and Mallory says, "Bye bye," and then Doc's like, "Bye bye." And Doc, <laughs> Doc is needling people on the way out of town. It's really kind of glorious. Oh, oh and, uh, well, um, there's kind of a um, now t- today they would actually show it, but he uh, apparently flashed the women of the town a very lewd hand gesture yes. that made that made them uh, reach for their vapors. But uh, in 1939, we don't see that. We just see the reaction. No, no, that, that was I actually thought that was very effective. I think that if you were going to shoot stagecoach today, you would. I think you might want to do it just the way Ford did it. I think you're right. Yeah. You know, because we don't know what he did, right? We just know that, I mean, he could have done something very minor and I think it would have driven these girls to, these women to the edge of cardiac arrest. Uh, you know, that's a very good point. But in our imagination, we can we can imagine anything that we want. It can, be, he did. can be, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so they leave town. On the way out of town, they pick up a character we have met before this, but it's the banker of the town. You mentioned Buck bringing a payroll yes. to, to, to this town and the payroll went to a banker who is uh, played really by a guy who does who does a great blowhard. Something yeah. Churchill is the actor's name, but uh, he plays uh, Gatewood, Mr. Gatewood. Uh, anyway, Gatewood's the banker, and uh, he has a lot of opinions about the country and how it should run, and he's a very proper person. What's good for the banks is good for the country. That's right, and he says this to he says this kind of thing to people who don't care. Right. <laughs> like, Gatewood, the banker, pontificates about society all the time and to people who just don't, who have no interest in anything that he's saying. You know, but see, it's very interesting. I'm going to assume that anyone listening to this podcast has taken the time to watch the film. Okay. Gatewood is the only character in the stagecoach that I was actually tempted to see as just a pure villain. Because as, as Max was about to explain, Gatewood, he's the banker of the town, and but he he's, cre- he's made this plan to basically steal the payroll that was just deposited into his safe and put it in his valise and jump on the stagecoach and get the hell away from the town and his wife. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and, and so it's very interesting. You know, I think that there's this, this thread that we need to continue to kind of work our way through where you talk about the film being subversive. Uh, in watching the, the film the second time, there's the scene where uh, Gatewood's wife, who I believe is one of the women who threw Dallas out of the town, yes, yes, comes into the bank and tells him when dinner's going to be ready and all this kind of thing. And there's kind of this this close-up of this very cold Henry Gatewood who clearly 
has very little affection for his wife, doesn't really like who she is, and he's just wanting to... Now, he, he himself is a rather fraudulent individual, but he just wants to get the hell away, and he's going to take this money, and even though he's a complete hypocrite because he's telling everybody how the banks can be trusted and how what's good for the banks is good for the country and all this kind of thing, but yet he's going to steal all this money that has been deposited into his bank and go and create a life for himself. Not for him and his wife, but for himself. Yeah. He slips out and catches the stage before it leaves the town. And he says, oh, I just got to tell her. He says to the to Buck and to the, sh- the sheriff is also joined. The sheriff is going to ride shotgun on this trip because he needs to catch somebody in between the town and Lord, what's the name? What's the name of the town they're going to? Lordsburg. Lordsburg. Um, he needs to catch a guy named Johnny uh, Ringo. Uh, yeah, the Ringo kid. More about that in a minute, but but Mr. Gatewood flags the wagon down. He's got you got one room for one more. I just got a telegram, and he gets on, and this will this will strike the sheriff as a little odd because he knows that the telegram service is down. Yeah. Anyway, he doesn't think much about it because it, it's not really that important to him ah, at that moment. But who else figured it out? Oh, who did? I didn't. Doc Boone. Ah. Doc Boone says that. Uh, wouldn't you know that since they, you know, oh. since you received a telegram. Oh, oh yes. Oh, I'd forgotten. So, and, yeah. So, so we should back yeah. up a little bit before before Gatewood happens, before the stagecoach even leaves town. Sorry, guys. Uh, but the army comes rolling into the town and they need the stagecoach to take a letter to the first stop. Forks. Right. I think the place is called Forks something or other. And then they say, hey, you know, we can't tell you guys what to do, but you probably shouldn't take passengers on this trip because there's, it's going to, it's dangerous. We'll be, we'll be with you for a little while, but everybody rides at their own risk. Yeah. And Uh, everyone agrees to it. Yeah. And so, well, but that also, that convinces Hatfield to make the decision to go on the stage. Uh, because he has he has a connection to Mrs. Mallory, and he decides that he needs to go and protect her on the trip That's because right. he he takes because, a, because he takes a very protective interest in her. It's more than protective. She. He and she and uh, Hatfield, the gambler, and Miss Mallory, uh, the woman who is going to meet her military husband, they are very attracted to each other right away, and it's not platonic. I I, I agree with you, and and I think that the film is. Te- John Ford is brilliant in establishing that this movie does use close-ups, but it doesn't use them all the time. And when it does, it's trying to make a point. And right before, um, when Mrs. Mallory gets into the stage, Hatfield is in the middle of a a game of poker. And um, there's a close-up of Mrs. Mallory looking out the window of the stage. And we get the impression she's looking for him. Yeah, oh yeah. Like she's trying to lock eyes with him and he looks out the window and locks eyes with her. Um, Now at that moment, he he doesn't actually try to get on the stage then. It's only when he discovers that there's danger involved that he does decide that he needs to do something about it. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. He says something. He says something about. Uh, he says something poetic about a lady, and uh, one of his poker buddies is like, "What are you saying? What are you talking about? You talking to yourself?" And he was like, "Well, you guys wouldn't understand. You guys don't." Yeah. Basically, he says you guys are a bunch of dimwits, and you guys wouldn't right, know right. You're a lady. But I think it's when the soldiers come into town, and he notices that that he decides to to join the trip, and and he says, "Well, I'm pretty fair hand with a gun, you know." And the sheriff says, "Yeah, we found that out a few too many times. Get in." Yep. Yep. And. Uh, but he, the, for some reason, the gambler's taken it upon himself to protect her, right? Right. So anyway, they all know about the the the, the threat of Geronimo as they're leaving town. Then they pick up Gatewood. Gatewood is going on and on about, like, the beautiful soldiers and the other soldiers. It certainly does make a... Oh, let me back up a little bit. When Gatewood gets in the stagecoach, he sits between the two women, right? Yeah. 
And then he takes up the maximum amount of room his body will allow him to take up. I know. Yes. And then he says, ha, huh, a little crowded in here, without making any effort to make things easier on anybody else sitting with him. That's, Isn't that's right. This, I, they don't ever spell this out, but this is an instance where Ford is using a character's actions rather than exposition to establish what kind of person this is. And what we see in that moment is that he is a very greedy, very self-interested person, which we yes. kind of already knew because we watched him steal the money. But there could have been some kind of desperation in that act. But now when we see him behave like a, a, a lummox yeah. with women, he uh, we, we realize right away that he's just like you said, a villain. Yeah. And that, that's when he goes on, he's like, sure does make me feel good to be riding uh, across the plains with these good soldiers. Uh, and he doesn't know why they're there. And he's like, why are they following us anyway? And that's when Doc says, eh, well, we're going to be killed. <laughs> what? <laughs> eh, we'll be scalped. We're going to be scalped. Dead in one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah. Jump the reservation. Oh, why wasn't I informed? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when that's when Doc spots the first, you know, the hole in his story. He's like, well, wouldn't you have been warned about this by the telegram? We were all told earlier, but you should have known already because of the telegram. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And so, anyway... A funny scene. Again, we see that that fatalism and stoicism of the Doc. Yeah, I mean, Doc knows the kind of person that he is, but Doc is not surprised by that kind of behavior in people. No, right? No. Yeah. And so, and then they're, they're riding and we're getting to know these characters uh, through the course of uh, their time in the stagecoach. Yeah. Uh, uh, th th there are multiple dynamics that are, that are established. We kind of get uh, Doc and, and Hatfield have a, a neat little exchange about the, about the war, about the civil war. Well, well yeah, yeah. Um, well, that, that's really one of the great moments. But before that, Doc's cigar is getting to Mallory. That's a great moment, But does yeah. this happen before or after we pick up? I think this happens all after we pick up Ringo. And maybe, maybe. Yeah. So I guess we... I guess we should get to that because, you know, a lot of the exchanges in the carriage could really happen at any time. It's all about character establishment. It's all about uh, these characters that really they're establishing who they have always been. Well, and right? I, it's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But one of the kind of joys of watching it, and I think one of the things that will make this film worth rewatching is watching how everybody, watching how all of these actors are always on in, yes. in, the, in, the, in the stagecoach because they're always reacting to each other. They're always reacting in character. They're always behaving like they're real people. You know, when when uh, they when Gates first gets in the stagecoach, he I mean he regards Dallas with some scorn, right? Yeah. Uh, and he reacts to Ringo the same way. But we'll get into that in a minute. Little backstory here. The other thing that's going on in this small area of Monument Valley in Arizona is that we've got we've got Geronimo justifiably annoyed with settlers, right? Um, and then the other drama is what's going on with these with law and uh, the dynamics in the in the in these towns there's a guy named Ringo Ringo the Ringo kid right yep. and he we get the sense that he started out as a decent enough person but his family was wronged by the the outlaws of the region yes. the the plumber boys the plumbers yeah when they killed his father and they killed his brother right and so that's put Johnny on uh, not Johnny his name's not Johnny is it it's something it's it's just the it's just the Ringo it's just kid they okay. just call him kid yeah uh, but he says his real name i think henry is he's, he's a, Henry's my given name, but Ringo's uh, Ringo's just what I had. What, what people? Yeah, call yeah, he does say that. Yeah. But anyway, Ringo is is decided he's gonna he's gonna settle this feud one way or the other, and that's that he's gonna go after the plumbers in. Yeah, and and, and he knows where they are, and he is he's broken out, and the marshal Curly 
specifically chose to ride shotgun on this run because he knows that that the kid is out there somewhere and that the plumbers are in Lordsburg. And he knows Ringo's going to be there. Or he has a good chance of catching Ringo on the way there or catching Ringo at Lordsburg. We learn a lot about Curly's feelings about the kid as we go along because initially we think that, well, this is a dedicated lawman. He's going to stop a crime from happening. Yeah. But, uh, But it's a little bit more complicated than that. It is, it is. So... Along the way, they catch, they're, they're, they're riding hell for leather and their stagecoach, and yep. there's a gunshot. This is one of the weirder edits of the film, and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. There's a gunshot, the soldiers, uh, it cuts to the soldiers running across the uh, little stream, and then we find, that, then the next cut is this, like, this zooming close-up on Johnny Ringo. I don't know what happened there, or if it was a, this segment just didn't make much sense to me from an editing standpoint. I, I think I know what was supposed to be happening, but but what do you think happened? So I, I, I know what you're talking about, because actually uh, the shot happens. Um, and so what Max is talking about is that is that we see the, the cavalry going across the river. We hear the gunshot, and then we come in on this close-up on John Wayne, which is his, his first big close-up. This is the moment that made him a star and all this kind of thing. But uh, as a modern viewer, I was like, okay, uh, where are the soldiers? Did they ride away? Like, what, what's happening here? Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, there's not a problem with the narrative. I, I agree with your assessment of the editing. I wonder if in 1939 audiences would have rolled with it a little bit better because they just weren't used to the kind of seamless editing that we're used to today. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, certainly the goal of this moment was to kind of introduce John Wayne, you know, the, 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 the quick up, you know, the camera moving into his face, um, you know, the establishment of the hero of the film. That's what the scene is intended to do. I do agree that to modernize it, you want more from it. Well, I, what well, I just couldn't figure out what was supposed to be conveyed by the gunshot, the, 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 so it cuts from the wagon to the soldiers, a gunshot, and then we get the right the zoom on Wayne. And I just didn't know what was supposed to be conveyed. I sort of wonder if they that wasn't supposed to in, indicate him shooting his horse. Because when we zoom in on Wayne, he's got a saddle over his shoulder. Oh, right. And his rifle in his hand. And he's he does the, he's got a, it's called a saddle ring uh, Winchester um, 1892 model. So about 12 years after the the movie's supposed to take place. But anyway, he does this thing that that Wayne would be really, uh, would be something he would do a lot where he would load the lever action rifle by twirling it and causing the, the lever to deploy and, and chamber around. And so I, I wondered if he wasn't shooting his horse because the next thing we, we hear is that, oh, look, there's John, there's there's Ringo, says, yeah. says Buck from the cab. And uh, Ringo's like, yeah, hey, Buck. And then he says, yeah. hey, Curly. He's like, we figured you'd be in Lordsburg by now. And and this is when we just learned that, well, nope, my, my horse went lame. So I'm, I've been, so anyway, it looks like you've got a new passenger. Yeah. And there's a little tension between uh, the sheriff and and Ringo for a second, but he says, well, you can get on the wagon, but you're going to give me that rifle. You're under arrest, is what he says, basically. And he gives it to him, but he says that, you know, you might need me because there's... You know, there's been uh, settlements that that have been on fire. Like this is a dangerous, this is a dangerous run, and we're all going to be in danger. So you're you're probably going to need me. 
Yeah. And Curly does accept that, we find out later, you know, I mean, in, in almost the next scene. When well, they- he goes back He goes back and forth on it quite a bit. It's true, it's true. But uh, but anyway, so Wayne throws up his uh, his saddle on the, uh, on the wagon and gets in. This is another reaction that we get from Gatewood and Hatfield, the gambler, and Mallory when they find out that that's Ringo. Yeah. Because uh, Doc's like, oh, it's Ringo. I think I fixed your arm. Yeah. Are you Doc Boone? <laughs> yeah. And so we get this kind of reunion between Doc Boone and uh, and Ringo, but immediately all these other people in the cabin, high society, respectable people, look down immediately on Ringo. Right. Right? And Doc, I'm uh, sorry, no, Gateway, Gate, Gate, Gateway, that's his name? Gatewood. Gatewood. Gatewood picks up his satchel of money. And, and moves it off the floor away from uh, from Ringo, who has to sit on the floor because there's no more room in the in the cabin right. of the stagecoach. This is where we get some of more of that subtle stuff I think Ford was doing, where where uh, this is one of my favorite moments in the movie where Doc Boone says, I had just been honorably discharged from the union after our, our, our victory over the rebellion. Yeah. And uh, Hatfield says, you mean the war of the Southern... Uh, the, the war of the, the Southern Confederacy. I mean, no such thing. Yeah. <laughs> and Hatfield doesn't miss a beat. And I thought, well, that's amazing because yeah. this is this is this is John Ford not having any truck with the revisionism that was going on very strong in that time. Yes. I mean, this, this, yeah. This is this is the moment of you know this is Jim Crow is still going along. Mm-hmm. This is still the era where the 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 the, the South is trying to revise what the civil war was about right you know the you know they i have friends uh, who said that when they were who went to school in the south and they said they were still like friends our age i mean to say right. said that when they were learning history the civil war was called the war of northern aggression yeah despite the yeah. fact that that it is of course the south that that started the war right you know anyway but but so so but this is ford kind of saying very clearly no, that's not what I'm saying. And and that's not the only barb that the Southern gentleman is going to get from Doc Boone. True. And uh, and so anyway, what's neat about that exchange is Wayne's reaction to it, because he kind of like laughs a little bit. He's got like this little grin on his face when 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 Doc Boone basically just throws that silliness back in Hatfield's face. Right. I thought that was a neat touch. Did you did you notice that, too? When, when... Oh, no, no, I, I totally noticed that. I mean, I what the characters in the stagecoach are even today, I would I would submit is a microcosm of American society. Yep. That is really what this film is about. Uh, it, it's really a splendid adventure film and and actually does have great action scenes that we'll be getting to. But this this movie is primarily about character and it is about the people in the stagecoach are kind of a microcosm of American society at the time, a microcosm of American society in 1939. And I would submit even today, this th- that the characters in this film still resonate in in the experience of Americans in terms of the debates that we have in terms of the the uh, the perceptions that American individuals have about their history and the fights they're prepared to have about them I think that's that's absolutely right there are other Ford films that kind of delve into this idea of history as yes myth and narrative but in this one specifically I find that Ford I feel like Ford is subtly aligning with a certain perspective yes and actually um like it's he's not he's not it's, it's not both sides he's not both sides in it he's not like well Hatfield has a point Doc Boone has a point 
Ford is being very judgmental and harsh, I think, as harsh as he's willing to be without giving away his hand to all of the people that are supposed to be high society, who are supposed to be the virtue, the virtuous ones in society. We'll see that more as the show goes on, but but in almost the next scene where Doc Boone is smoking his cigar and it's upsetting Mallory, Hatfield says, put that out. It's it's upsetting the the, the lady. Uh, it's, 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 it's upsetting Miss Mallory. And, and Boone immediately is like, oh my God, I'm sorry. Uh, he doesn't say it like that, but he's like, in his way. He says, he says excuse me, ma'am. And you get the sense without saying it that you know i wasn't thinking had i had i been thinking i would never have done that i will i will i will end that right away but hatfield can't let it go no a gentleman never smokes in front of a lady (laughs) and then this is some of that but but we see some grit from from boone where he says you know it's interesting i pulled a pulled a bullet out of a guy who had been shot by a gentleman a couple weeks ago it was in his back and this takes us back to that little exchange between the sheriff and Hatfield about, yeah. you know, I can shoot fairly straight. Yeah, we've seen that a bunch. Yeah. We've seen that too many times, Hatfield. And uh, yeah. and Hatfield immediately gets angry. Are we, how dare you? Are you saying? And this is when Ringo jumps in too, to this conversation. And he's like, settle down, guy. Doc doesn't mean anything by it. And yeah. this kind of shows too that like Ringo isn't, he's not, he finds Hatfield somewhat amusing, I think, but he's not afraid of Hatfield. But right. I get the sense that Hatfield is not willing to press the conflict with him. He was willing to talk shit to a drunk an old drunken doctor but he yeah. backs down against you know pretty mild rebuke from Ringo he's like, oh, doc, calm down doc doesn't mean anything by it and Ringo doesn't go doesn't pursue the argument anymore right so no. I thought that was interesting yeah anyway anything else in this scene because this, this so we have like three chapters of maybe not three but we have vignettes inside the stagecoach between the towns and this is the first one of those anything else happened in that that stood out to you that struck you Nothing. Nothing happened that stuck out. Um, there is a thread that I want to pick up a, a little bit later. You just you just brought up kind of the the political ramifications of what Ford was trying to do with this film, and I think that you are totally right. And I want to revisit that not now, but a little bit later, because actually, I mean, I guess I guess we should say that um, this film is criticized today as uh, for its for its political treatment of Native Americans. Yep, yep. And uh, and I understand understand that but the thread that you're picking up on the on the political commitments I want to pick that up again later because I think you know you started uh, in talking about this film you started talking about it as kind of a subversive kind of countercultural kind of kind of piece and I'm really in agreement with you so I'm going to want to kind of come back to that but uh, I just want to kind of you know keep that in the listeners minds that and you know if you've seen this movie and you're listening to us and you go back and you listen and you watch it again and you should do so you know keep your eye out for these little moments because these moments they're all very subtle but uh they they really bear repeated viewing so then they get to the the first town which is where mallory's supposed to stop this right. is supposed to get off and be with her husband but her husband she finds has been moved on to he's been right. to go fight elsewhere so she's going to have to ride on the soldiers. So, so there's no military garrison at that at this fort right now. Right, they've had to leave. The military garrison, the 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 cavalry that's been following them, has to go back. So the right. next leg of their journey is going to be without military protection. Right. And so they have a debate about, so, so sorry, sorry. So the the captain of the cavalry is like, well, look, I got to go on. I got to do my thing. I can't stay with you guys. If you go on, you go on your own. And Mallory wants to go on. But anyway, the Sheriff Curley is going to 
have a vote. Let's go inside and have a vote. Let's eat and think about what we do next. Before that happens, though, there's a little dust up between Gatewood and the captain. Gatewood is furious that the that the cavalry is not going to accompany them to the next station. Right. And the captain is very polite, but very firm. He's like, look, I have my orders. I'm going to follow my orders. And well, listen, son, you need to follow us. Your duty is to follow us. If you don't follow us, I will bring you. I'll have you brought up on charges. I will go to Washington if I have to. Let's find sir that's your that's your right i'm gonna follow my orders if you get in my way i will have to have you restrained and gatewood acts down immediately gatewood folds immediately well let's not get out of let's not let's not get bent out of shape son after he had just been yelling at this very nice very dutiful military guy who's given them the right advice yeah who's been who's very nice to them i just thought it was so funny when gatewood just folded he does he does that a lot he really um, which I mean, I do think Gatewood, he's smart enough for the most, not always, as we'll see, but for the most part throughout the film, Gatewood knows when he needs to shut his mouth because he knows that he, that, that he, that he can't really attract a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah. And so whenever he backs down, it's usually because he realizes that, uh, uh, he, he really doesn't want the kind of scrutiny, atten- yeah, scrutiny that, that, that he's inviting by yelling at everybody. Exactly. So, so they go in, uh, the, the stagecoach riders and, and, and drivers go into the, to the station, which has a saloon and a restaurant and doc has found another drunkard that he's old. He's friends with there to, to, to get drunk with. And Curly has a, he says, look, we got a boat to see if we're going to go on. I don't want to, I don't want to send anybody. I don't want anybody to travel with us that doesn't want to, or doesn't think we should go on. And he takes a boat and he goes to Mallory first. He's like, I think I, I don't want to put a lady in, in harm's way without asking her for, you know, to decide whether or not she's going to do that, whether or not she's going to come. He's not going to force her to. Right. And she says, well, I'm my husband's further on. If he's in danger, I'm going to go to where he's at. And Curly turns and gets ready to ask somebody else. And this is where Ringo pops off. And he's like, well, why aren't you going to ask this lady? Pointing to Dallas. And Curly clearly is annoyed by this, but he doesn't seem to want to start a scene. So then he asks Dallas, well, what do you want to do? I thought it was interesting because Ringo is giving her this second class citizen in the society a voice. Yes. And it's it's a really neat moment. And she knows that she really doesn't have a voice and that it's not it's nice that Ringo did this but she's like oh, it doesn't matter whatever <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. and uh, then Curly goes on and asks the Reverend Reverend Hancock I actually Mr. <laughs> Peacock a um, peacock <laughs> and and he he gives a really great straight and very well well delivered uh, nay to going on well, that's one against he looks at buck buck what do you want to do you're for it let's <laughs> buck you guys may remember as the stage driver who uh, has been bullied by curly into doing everything the whole trip turns to doc and doc do you, what do you think should we go forward do you want to stay no and then he gets a not only am I a philosopher, I'm a, I'm a fatalist. <laughs> Doc gives a great soliloquy, which basically comes down on, yeah, I'm going. I don't care. It's fine. And, uh, and of course, he, and then the marshal votes for Ringo. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's overwhelming. We're pushing on. And the gambler is going to go wherever Mallory is going to go. Well, he okay, but there is a he he has a deck of cards in front of him. That's true. And and he lifts it, and it's the Ace of Spades, yeah. which will come up again. Uh, and so you kind of get the sense that Hatfield Hatfield is not really a courageous guy. He's it's, it's not that he is unwilling to court danger. He just would rather not. Yeah. And and you kind of get the sense as a gambler, he's kind of lived on chance for yeah. Uh, uh, 
for quite a while. But as a gambler, you know, he also he does do a risk assessment. Yep. You know, and you know the rate of return and all this kind of thing, and whether or not a gamble is worth the risk. And he does decide to go. Yes, he does. But but he's not he's not adamant. <laughs> no, no, no. Then they have lunch while Curly and, and Buck get the horses ready. Much to Buck's chagrin, who came here for the express purpose of eating. He really did want to eat. And uh, and then we get another weird exchange where uh, Mallory sits at one end of the table. Gatewood is by her. And uh, Ringo says, Dallas is walking away from the table and from all those people. And Ringo says, here, sit here, ma'am. Yeah. And he pulls out the chair for her. Doesn't He doesn't care that she's a prostitute. Doesn't care about any of this stuff. He's going to treat her with respect. And she sits down and then immediately upsets Mallory and the gentleman who says, it's much cooler on the other end of the table. Why don't we go sit by the window? And she gets up and we get this like neat little judgmental face, uh, facial expression from Gatewood, right? Right. As the audience, if you're like me, you're like, who the fuck is Gatewood to be giving anybody the side eye? Right, yeah. You know? But he gets up and moves off with the genteel people and that leaves uh, Ringo and... Dallas on the other and and Ringo covers for her. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, oh, it's, doing, okay. Yeah. Well, he, you know, the, he said he, he basically says that, you know, I guess that it's it's me, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I can't remember the exact line, but yeah. Well, what he says is, I guess you can't break out of prison and into society in the same week is what he said. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and she's like, it's not you. And so I like your idea, though, that he did that to kind of help her save face. Otherwise, yeah. I think he's just a dummy. <laughs> Which is, now, is, otherwise, I think he's just a really nice dummy. But we were, it's revealed later on that he knows. Uh, yeah, and uh, she, I, I think that she wonders if he is just a nice dummy. <laughs> but uh, but I think, and even watching the film for the first time, I think that Wayne plays it in such a way that you're very aware of what he's doing. Yeah. That, that he, he, he knows who she is. He's very defensive of her because of the situation he's been in. Oh, he, yeah. was wrongful, he was wrongfully imprisoned. He has felt the brunt of what the... Uh, respectable society can do to somebody and you know he's already been through it and and so he's very he's very accepting of it, of everybody uh pretty much where they are he doesn't really like the way these other people are acting and he'll call them out on it if it happens but you know Ringo's not really going to really mess with anybody but he is going to be defensive of Dallas yeah. and that will be he'll continue to do that from here on out that's right that's right so they eat dinner or no, lunch sorry they eat as much lunch as they can and then they're back on the on the stage and we have some more character interactions they're on their own now and there's a very poignant yeah. moment it's a beautiful shot where the coach goes down one so we see this right. at forks in two direct forks uh the coach goes down one way and the cavalry goes the other and the captain kind of follows them a little bit and uh we get this nice little moment where da- uh sorry uh, mallory peeks her head out the window and waves her her handkerchief at the soldier and the soldier right. gives her a nice grin but when she puts her head back in after giving him you know a little uh wave the soldier's face really says everything that he all all of his worries suddenly show for the people in the wagon because he doesn't think that they should go on to the next stop he thinks they're gonna die yeah, yeah. He, he, i mean his worries are pretty justified but they do make it to the next stop without any real trouble except for weather. they do uh now um a quick sidebar okay. if we may 
the soldier that you're talking about is played by Tim Holt, uh, who um, played the second lead in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Really? With, hum- with Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Okay. That was his other very famous role. Anybody listening, if you haven't seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you should. It's wow. a wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, but Tim Holt had a long career as a character actor, and this was just kind of an early bit part for him. But uh, well, It's crazy because he had, I mean... Tim Holt has leading man looks. Yeah. I mean, he was, he cut quite a figure in that, in that, uh, in that outfit. I'm surprised that he was just a character actor. Um, but we do get some more. So this is the next character vignette where we see the characters interacting and, uh, and we see the dynamics starting to change a little bit. Mallory yeah. is starting to get sick. Yeah. She, we see her getting more and more sick over the course of Gatewood's tirade. Gatewood has a tirade in this scene where he's just shouting basically in Mallory's ear about taxes and how banks need to, uh, run themselves i somebody said they were going to send an an, uh, overseer to my bank i don't need to be overseen i i run my bank properly bankers know how to run banks and he's just going off right yelling in her ear oblivious oblivious to the fact that she could not give two shits less (laughs) nobody really puts a stop to this and everybody's getting colder because buck has decided to go through the coldest region that he can because it'll keep the apaches away from from the wagons because it's it's snowy and you know they're wearing breech and they're not wearing winter gear he doesn't think it's funny when he says that though to he's like well no breach breach skin wearing apaches won't don't like it up here it's too cold the sheriff looks at him like i'm not sure about that <laughs> right the sheriff doesn't have a lot of respect for buck's intellect i mean he likes buck a lot <laughs> right but he tolerates buck's ideas that's the best you could say that he does but Everybody's getting really cold. And this is the first moment where we see Dallas putting past her own bitterness because she sees Mallory's in trouble. And she says, maybe you could trade places with Mr. Gatewood and you can you can lean on me if you would like, because she can't really, there's the, the idea of propriety. She can't really lean on Gatewood. I mean, why would you encourage him to talk to you more, right? <laughs> Right, right. Mallory's polite, but she's clearly not thrilled with the idea. She said, no thanks. So she just continues to get sick. And uh, but everybody's not happy in this in this cabin, except for maybe Doc, who's <laughs> Doc is making googly eyes at uh, at the whiskey drummer. And at the end of at the end of Gatewood's tirade, he says, because oh, the, the, the banker says, you know what this country needs? It needs a businessman in the presidency. Co- going back to your idea that this film could be made today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And and Gatewood, uh, sorry, and Doc, you know, has a, the appropriate rebuttal to that. What this country needs is more fudder, <laughs> which is not a word, but he doesn't care what anything about what Gatewood says. And, uh, anyway, the Doc seems to be the only one having a decent time until he passes out. And so during this scene, though, we do get to we do get some information about why Curly is on the trail of Ringo. Yes, you want to take that? You want to explain that? We do. We do. Is it here that we learn that uh, Curly knew Ringo's family? Yeah, and uh, friends that, with his dad. Yeah, he was friends with his dad. The plumbers had had killed his family, and that uh, Ringo is. Um, I kind of get the sense that he wants to. He kind. He feels like he's trying to save Ringo from himself. Well, that's right because because the conversation that leads to this revelation is that uh buck says you're not gonna like what i'm gonna have to say but i'm gonna say it and curly's like well <laughs> you've been talking nonsense the whole time just say whatever you're gonna say <laughs> right, yeah yeah and he's like you need to let ringo and the plumbers have it out the region the whole area will be better for it and yeah. curly doesn't think ringo can beat the plumbers and he says even if he does kill jake Plummer, Plummer has two brothers that are as ornery as he is 
the safest place yeah. for Ringo is in jail. Yeah, and he's... I could use the reward. <laughs> but but his, his main motivation is to keep Ringo safe. Yeah, he, he really cares about him because he knew him. He knew him going back. And, and so there's he's kind of protective of him. Yeah. So that's that's the whole that's the whole thing. That's why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, he he will enjoy the 500 pieces of gold or whatever it is he's going to get. But but his main motivation is just to get Ringo to safety because we'll see later on that the gold really wasn't as important to him. But uh, so then they make it to the next town and the soldiers aren't there either. Right. We find out Mallory's husband is hurt. We find out the the owner of the place, the owner of this way station where you get new horses and, and stuff. He, he explains everything to Mallory. Oh, senor, senora, your husband is hurt bad, I think. He thinks, yeah. he thinks a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, <laughs> Mallory yeah. doesn't take this very this news very well. The place is sort of in disarray. It, it seems almost like it's falling into disrepair. This way station. Did that, yes. It's, it's the it's the most uneasy feeling place we have in the film. I think right. Definitely. Um, dilapidated, distressed. Yeah. Not not the not the owner. I married an Apache. I am okay. I think. I think. <laughs> and uh, they're gonna have to stay the night and uh we get some more interesting character stuff i think uh i think, think. <laughs> where <laughs> right when they arrive mrs mallory faints yeah she she falls over and it's then that it's kind of revealed to us that she is with child and that she's she's gonna have a baby and doc boone's services are needed immediately that's right that's right uh well it's because it, it's how can i forget this scene the southern gentleman finds her crashed out on the floor mallory he, call, he calls for help yeah the two people who rush to mallory's side are dallas and the doc yeah they run in the doc comes out of the room and he's he looks like he's back in the war against the rebellion yeah and he says i need coffee lots of coffee takes his jacket off yeah. yes yes we see a very what what is revealed in this scene is that when he wants to be, he is a very capable doctor. When he needs to be. When he needs to be. That's an important distinction because actually Doc Boone, unlike some of the the more morally dedicated quote unquote characters in the film, when when the chips are really down, Doc will understand. Okay, I'm needed. Yeah. I need to be at my best and whatever I need to do to get to that point, I have to do. Yep. And so, you know, he gets the coffee and they, they uh, <laughs> dump the coffee down him. And so there's a, a neat moment. They dump the coffee down. And he's like, more, more, more. Yep. And then Ringo takes him and kind of dunks him down. And when I first watched it, I thought that he was dunking him underwater. Nope. But no. Then they cut away. And, you know, I really love that because clearly he was vomiting. Yep. And I like the way this movie did this because a lot of older movies, when they have someone vomit, they'll just have them go, which we all know is not what vomiting sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really like that they just cut away from it. I think that's more effective than, and yeah. So I I like people who can't see what Jason's doing, he's panting miming coughing into his hand which as he said isn't vomiting but and then when they bring him back up from the that that bent position curly throws water in his face and a lot of it hits john wayne and you can tell that that wayne 
wasn't really expecting that as an actor because he kind of like responds to it. And then when Curly, I'm sorry, when uh, when uh, Boone says again, Wayne like steps away a little bit and uh, <laughs> so he doesn't get hit by the water. But I just thought that was a, a, a bunch of little fun character acting and I think some improv acting by Wayne, uh, John Wayne in the in the scene. And then he, uh, then Doc and Dallas go back into the room with Mallory. At this point, the saloon owner's wife appears and he he issues her some instructions and she scares the hell out of everybody because she's this you know Apache woman and she's surrounded by Apache women. Well, but so, but there's actually, I think, a, a great line that could be interpreted a certain way where I think it's uh, Reverend Peacock that says, she's a savage. Yeah. And and uh, and her husband says, oh, she's savage, I think. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I almost interpreted that as being kind of like a sexual kind of statement. That, okay. Oh, okay. yeah, she's savage, all right. Um. Well, that's funny because like, well, we'll get into it in a bit, but for a lot of the 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 progressive aspects that you were talking about, the criticisms of the film. This guy is married to an Apache woman. Buck is married to a Mexican woman. Yes. There's there's this tension that's going on with the with the kind of racism of the time. And actually, I want to say that the the word savage is used only a couple times in the film. But yeah. the race dynamics actually don't really get talked about at all in the film. I I totally agree. I totally um, agree. There's no. There's no demonization of Geronimo and the Apaches, really. There's there's a there's a very black and white recitation of what they're doing, but it does, it's not like they're demons. It's not like it doesn't otherize them so much as other. Uh, it just says Geronimo's off the reservation and he's he, he wants to go to war again. That's what they say. Yeah. But they don't they don't spend a lot of time otherizing Native Americans, which I think is important. It- and they also don't spend a lot of time talking about the just cause of either side. I don't think the film talks either way. No. The film, the film, you know, a modern film would probably um, try to justify, would probably try to make Ger- Geronimo a character, try to make, you know, his cause to be something that, that should be talked about and pursued. Now, I think that most films at this time, we would kind of assume that there would be this, this kind of promotion of the of the American way and 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 the, you know the settlement of the West and we have to just defeat these these savages and this kind of thing. I don't think this movie ever does that either way. I don't think that that's a message that that Ford wanted to. I don't think that's something Ford wanted to say ever. No, in in none of his films, but but more but especially not here. There are other films that he made where characters will make that case. Yeah. In those situations, I don't think that Ford was supporting that message. No. He was just expressing that there were people who did. Yeah. In this film, that never really happens. I mean, the 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 background war with Geronimo is really just that it's a background well it's interesting let's let's juxtapose the way geronimo is discussed and the way the plumbers are discussed yeah they're ornery they're bad they're evil everyone is frightened of them because of their character right right people are frightened of geronimo because they're at war with geronimo and the apache right. and that's a different kind of thing it's a lot less morally freighted than the way you know plumbers are scum of the earth right that's why everybody right. hates them you know right and they're not talked about in the same way and I right. think that, that might be important. I, I hope people will respond and, you know, email us. Uh, you guys haven't been emailing the Lord Movies account, so get on that. And then tell us what you think, especially about this film, because I think there's a lot to discuss. So, Doc, also, I want to go back to this real quick, what you said. When Doc's needed. I said when Doc wants to be, he can be. He's a great doctor. But that's not quite right, because he never wants to be. <laughs> but when he's needed, he will he will heed the call. He'll he'll help out, like you said. And I think that that's a, that's a great point. So they deliver the baby. Shocking to everybody, right? 
right? Right. Because she was concealing that from everybody. I, I got the sense that Dallas might have known. I got the sense that her friends in town knew. But it's a shock to Hatfield and, of course, to everybody else. We've met the proprietor's wife. And she does the... This is, this is the thing that I liked almost, but not quite. Where we get a little musical number by the Apache woman, who is his yeah. wife. Now... What did you think of this scene? It's where she sings a song and it's a very it's a very classical Western moment of this period that people would have complained about. It's a highly produced musical number. Like yeah. the, the, the soundscape changes. It's like we're listening to a musical right. on, on a radio or something like that. And it's not very long, though. It's not very long. And in it, though, she gives some signal to her friends to go let the Apaches know that there are people here, I think. She sends them off to do something. That that was not clear. Um, is that what she says? No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly what she says. She says something to them. I only got a little bit of the, My Spanish isn't very good, but I only got, like, uh, something about her heart. Uh, she, she sings when she's alone. Uh, <coughs> but uh, I don't know what all the words of the song were. Yeah, but I did get the sense that she sent them off for, for whatever reason. They steal some and, horses. Yeah, and they, they steal the horses and um, um, they get away. Yep. And so, but yeah, I mean, that was something that was very confusing to me that that I'm not sure what we were supposed to get out of that. If that was, you know, as you said, to warn the Apaches or if they just wanted to, to leave and steal the horses because there were horses to be stolen. Yeah, I didn't quite, I didn't quite get that. I didn't yeah. quite get what that scene was supposed to tell us. And, and that's that's the only problem with it is I'm not sure what we were supposed to get out of that. Well, the other thing too, I don't know if she speaks to those her, her compadres in Spanish, but that would not have been a way to conceal her intentions. We've already established that Ringo speaks Spanish. He yeah. Speaks, he speaks to one of uh, uh, the proprietor's assistants, you know, about getting water. He's, uh, he says something about go getting water. He tells somebody to go get some water. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the new trouble. Between all this though, there's an interesting conversation where Dallas basically talks Ringo out of his vendetta. Yeah. And it's a really kind of cool thing because because he he likes her a lot and he's basically decided to put the moves on her. I mean, like, yeah. not not just in a sexual way, which doesn't really happen in the film, but he's actively courting her because she thinks she's he's she he thinks she's a pretty interesting lady. She basically says, Look, I know you like me, but she basically says, What's the over-under on this if you go and get killed? You know, right, right. how's that gonna make us happy? Or if you kill if you kill uh Jake Plummer, I can't remember if that's the guy's name. Luke. Luke. Luke Plummer and his brothers come after you. We'll always be looking over our shoulder. How does that make us happier? How is it going to make you happy? They have this interesting conversation about vengeance. And she kind of convinces him. She convinces him. She says, look, you're free to go. Get on your horse. Go to Mexico. I'll meet you after we get to Lordville. Uh, uh, yeah. Lordsville. Is that right? Lordsburg. Lordsburg. And he's like, will you really? And she's like, yes, leave. Right? Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting moment because this was a, it was an interesting conversation for these two characters to have. And it was even more interesting to me that he was like, you know what? She's right. Why, <laughs> yeah, am, I, yeah. why am I gonna throw myself my life away on this vendetta? And yeah, and he he almost le he leaves. He hops on his horse, or he's getting ready to hop on his horse, I think, and he is riding away, and we see him stop just as he's about to break away. Because he sees something. He sees something. And this is when Curly notices something's up. Where's Ringo? Where's Ringo? And, and, he, and, he, and he runs after and absolutely just flattens Dallas. <laughs> oh, my God. Dallas tries to stop him, and he treats her really pretty roughly. Yeah. And, he, I mean, he hurls her across the ground. And she's a pro, though. She took that as an actress. I mean, she seemed to really do that just fine. Curly's putting the cuffs on Ringo and he's like, you're not going anywhere. And he's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. Look. And they look and they see the the signal, the smoke signals of the Apache right. war, or the war 
the war council that's going on. Yeah. So this is Curly going into antitrust mode. <laughs> And he, he cuffs Ringo. And, uh, and that's when they have to beat feet and get out of there. Isn't this the moment where before they leave, though, they do debate about leaving. But it's like, well, you know, we're not leaving until Doc Boone says that Mrs. Mallory is well enough to travel. That's right. That's right. And there is a moment where Gatewood um, uh, goes back behind the bar and says, join me in a drink, doctor. And he says, no. And he, he refuses. Doc Boone. Yeah refuses to have a drink with somebody, which is probably the most powerful moral judgment that Doc Boone could ever make against a person. It's true. Right? It's true. And uh, in this, somewhere in this scene too, Gatewood flips out on everybody because he thinks somebody's stolen his money. Yeah, and Buck's and Buck just used his valise to as a pillow. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean anything by it. And yeah. then and Gatewood was, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, he backs down again. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry. That that thing that I just did that attracted all of your attention to me. Let's forget that. <laughs> right. But uh, but this is a moment where Hatfield kind of leans on uh, Doc's expertise. And he th this is another moment where the dynamics are kind of changing a little bit, where Hatfield's like, we're going to listen to the doctor. Yes. Hatfield, who's had nothing but contempt for Doc, now won't do anything if the doc doesn't agree that it's safe to move Mallory. Yeah. And nobody's being quite as rude to Dallas at this point because Dallas is taking care of the baby. Yeah, well, and there's also, uh, and this is, uh, it should be pointed out, you know, John Ford using a close-up uh, in a very effective way. There's this great composition of the moment when when Dallas comes out with the baby and she's, st and she's standing on, on the, the right side of the screen and she's holding the baby and all the guys are all congregated together uh, Reverend Peacock trying to, because he's shorter than the rest, trying to, to to get in there and see see the baby. Because, you know, they're all kind of this kind of weird dysfunctional family at this point. But if you watch the if you watch the scene as it's composed, everyone's in frame. But if you watch closely, Dallas and Ringo have their eyes locked on each other. Ringo's watching her and she's watching him. Then, in case the viewer missed it, close up on Dallas, close up on John Wayne, close up on Dallas. Just to, to really kind of rivet home that these two people are really taken with each other. We all we already knew that. We already knew that. But this is how a close-up should be used, though, as kind of a punctuation. I think so. Next, yeah. I, I agree. Um, and this is kind of them seeing a possible future. For yes, you. absolutely. They both this, see it. I mean, they never say, hey, this could be us. Right. You know? But, I mean, that's, that's what's implied. But eventually they do have to get cracking and they do have to leave and they take off and at some point though don't they come across a, a burnt out ranch yeah they, uh, they do right before they um because they're on their way to the ferry to get across the river and the the village next to the ferry and the ferry itself has been destroyed oh that's right that's right and uh and there's actually a pretty brutal scene i mean you know everyone talks about uh so there's this famous scene in the searchers which is a john ford film from the 50s that uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and and Martin Scorsese and countless people have talked about where there's this burning um, uh, 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 homestead that people have looked to to kind of imitate. Um, but I think John Ford, this seems a little underrated because oh, there's yeah. even the there's even the moment where um, Hatfield puts his coat over a, a corpse of a woman. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and everything's in flames, and you just get the sense that all you know that that you know numerous people have been killed. Now, now these are people that we don't know. Yeah, it's kind of a brutal scene. Oh, absolutely. And we get 
we get our first harrowing stunt of the, of the movie, which yeah. is the wagon across the river, because like you said, the ferry is gone. So they have to figure out how they're going to get these, these things across, uh, this, this wagon and these horses and everybody across the, the river without a ferry. This scene I just learned today, John Ford thought about cutting it out of the film entirely because they didn't think they could get the wagon across. It wouldn't float, right? Okay. And the stuntman, it was John Wayne's stuntman, Yakima Hannett, I think is his name, Okay. Uh, said, well, let's just attach some hollow logs to the side of it and that's what they do it looks like they're putting real logs attaching real logs to the side of the wagon in the movie but they're really based they're basically flotation devices yeah and then they they plunge the wagon into the river with the horses on the end of it uh, you know dragging it along um this was in a time when animal survival wasn't paramount i read i read a lot about the stunts today uh and the way they would get the horses to flip over and stuff and a lot of horses had to be shot uh oh. and or put down after those stunts because because uh, I'll get to that in a minute, but but so they drag this wagon across the river, and it's it just looks really good. They're throwing rocks at the horses to get the horses to drag the you know we got to go, guys, because these Native Americans are behind us and they're going to kill us all. And it's a good scene. It's very it's very tense because you think, oh, what's going to happen? Is the wagon going to get drugged down river? Yeah. Or are we going to lose horses? How's it? What's going to happen? I mean, I was even on the edge of my seat, even though I thought probably the wagon makes it across. <laughs> but so they make it across. And then they're they're still riding pretty hard, but it looks like they're out of the woods. They feel like they might be out of the woods for a second here, don't they? They do, they do. And uh, th th there's another delightful discussion, you know, amongst all of them. Although I think that we see the Apache. We see them, yeah. Yeah, that's revealed to us that they're they're right there, ready to attack the the stagecoach. Yeah. And so, so yeah, this, at this point in the film, they cut from the interior of the stagecoach to the Apache kind of gathering and following along. Uh, we get Gatewood saying, oh, well, you know, I was sorry, everybody. It was just a tense ride. I didn't mean to be snapping at everybody, you know. Then we go to Reverend, the Reverend, Reverend yep. Peacock, the whiskey drummer. He starts holding forth saying, you know, you guys should all come to my house in Kansas City. If you come to my, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, please come. And Kansas City, Kansas City, Kansas. Not that's right. That's right. My wife makes a better meal than anybody. And as he's talking, a fairly horrific thing happens. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, well, um, the Reverend is, is uh, we don't see it. We hear it and we see everybody's reaction to it. But the Reverend has been struck with an arrow in his shoulder very close to his heart yeah i mean it looks bad it looks bad it, it looks really bad and actually i um i had seen this movie years ago uh it's been more than a decade but i had seen this movie years ago so watching it again i actually uh kind of bit my thumbnail because <laughs> i i actually thought that that was really a, that was a terrific moment because watching it I, I i had so much affection for the character of mr peacock that seeing it i actually kind of wondered oh i forget to see die yeah yeah and, and I, I uh, no idea. Um, yeah i was i was on the edge of my seat right there yeah everybody reacts to it like oh my god interesting too the way the way doc immediately starts working on on the reverend when he's needed he jumps into action I get the sense that Doc has been waiting for somebody to kill him since the Civil War, honestly. <laughs> right. Anyway, and that's when one of the most harrowing and amazing pieces of stunt work I have ever seen takes place. Curly realizes things are bad and he yells to Buck, run for the flats, the which is like this old lake, this dry lake bed. Go to the dry lake bed. We'll be able to go fast on this flat area i think that that's why he said that at that point they're all riding uh they're riding i'm sorry the wagon is just hell for leather into the into the flats and we see that they are really really outnumbered yes it's a it's it is a 
a huge number of Apaches that are going to try and bring this wagon down. And of course, at this point, Curly's like, all right, Ringo, I'm going to need you up on top. And Ringo climbs up on top of the wagon. He gets his uh, his Winchester and uh, everybody starts fighting as much as they can. The Doc is shooting, Hatfield is shooting, Ringo's shooting, Curly's shooting, Buck's riding, you know, and uh, uh, Buck's driving, Buck, Buck's piloting. But I don't know how they did this scene, but it looked incredibly dangerous to me because that wagon looks like it is going all out. Everybody looks like they're riding really hard. And I just kept thinking, this can't be safe. Do you know anything about how this stunt was done? I I don't. My assumption would be that it that it was all done for real. I mean, this was the this was how these people made a living. Well, well, I'm not surprised. I mean, like, but Wayne is on top of the wagon with his foot hooked into one of the luggage rails. Yeah. After several people have tossed his stuff off, he says, sorry about this. And they throw his saddle off. It's interesting. You were talking about how Hatfield isn't a uh, brave man necessarily, but he does seem to be enjoying himself as he's shooting people. Yeah, 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 he so does. He's got like a big grin on his face as he's shooting at people. And Curly was right. Doc can shoot pretty well when he's when he's sober. And even when he's yeah. not, he's not very sober in this scene. No, he's trembling a bit. You yeah. can see it, yeah. And so anyway, so they have this, I, I, there's not much to say. I mean, it's a, it's a chase scene. People jump on the horses from the, from their other, from the, the Native Americans jump on the horses of the stagecoach and uh, horses are flipping over. This is harrowing looking at it as I read about this today. The way they would get the, what they call the bullet fall is they would tie a wire to the horse's harness, right? Mm-hmm. The rider would get the horse galloping as fast as it would go. Okay. The wire was attached to a, a anchor point behind the horse. And when the wire went taut, the horse would flip over. Now the rider can anticipate this, but the horse has no idea. And so this is why there would be so many injuries of horses. So they had to shoot horses quite a lot in Western wow. today. Yeah. And then because of pressure outside the industry and inside the industry, they stopped doing that. that yeah. I don't know when they stopped doing it, but but it is too bad. But it creates some quite dramatic shots here. So anyway, trigger warning, I guess, if you're a horse lover. Yeah, yeah. And, and we all kind of are. So, But it doesn't look good for our wagon, our stagecoach people, because they all run out of bullets. And and that's a great moment when Doc says, more ammunition! Yeah. And uh, and Curly just, just kind of shows that he's out too. And yeah. it's pretty much curtains. It it is, it is. Now, something very fascinating happens in this scene. Hatfield opens up his uh, pistol, and there's one round left in it. Yeah. And uh, he looks over at Mallory, who is praying or yeah. something, and he rotates the, the cylinder around. And he's going to kill her. He's going to kill her. In the corner, Dallas is hugging the baby, and she's horrified too, but... But so these are these women are having this this horrific reaction to horrified reaction to what's happening, and we get this really poignant shot of Mallory praying and the pistol yeah. coming into frame right by her head. Yeah, and I'm like, is this going to happen? I'm like, is he going to kill her? I, yeah. I I didn't know she if she was going to make it. Right, and then there is a gunshot. Sorry, Hatfield drops his pistol. Sorry. And uh, because he's been shot. And I don't think Mallory realized that drama played out at all. No, she does not react to it at all because she, she, all she hears is the bugle, yeah. the bugle charge. Yeah. And uh, she came that close. Yeah. And uh, so the bugle charge signifies that the cavalry has arrived. And that's basically what saves our stagecoach people. There's also, I guess we do need to mention the, the amazing stunt where um, John Wayne stuntman goes out to the lead horse to get the reins of the, uh, of the stage coach which is you know again another amazing stunt that uh that still is really eye-popping oh even today 
by the time you guys listen to this, you'll have heard our John Wick uh, podcast where we talk and praise the stunt work. And this, I was so shocked that this movie held up so well. Yeah. I have not been on the, I, I've not been on the edge of my seat with a chase scene like this since I watched uh, Ronin with Robert De Niro. Yeah. Okay. Like this is a yeah. great chase. This is just such a great scene. So I, I, I may have told you this years ago, back when, uh, when I was living uh, in Richmond, our hometown, uh, I was part of the group that was putting together uh, uh, at the Civic Theater, which is where all the plays are done in our hometown, for people listening, uh, we started showing old movies on the big screen that they have there. Okay. And we showed Stagecoach one night. Okay. And watching this on the big screen with a group of people and hearing people react to it around you, you really get a sense of how well this film still works to this day. Oh, because, I, pe- because people were laughing, they were, you know, they were excited. Like people were really into it. Well, I no, I was, I was riveted, and yeah. uh, and I was happy that the, you know, that the cavalry arrived. I mean, this is that moment in the film that we always hear about. Oh, the cavalry has arrived, right? Yeah. Nothing really. Ha- we don't see. There's no fight between the cavalry and the Indians and the Native Americans that we see. They turn around and ride away, and and that's that. Then yeah. they 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 land in. Lordsburg, is that right? Did I say it right this time? Yeah, Lordsburg, yeah. Lordsburg. That's a good moment. They all feel pretty relieved. Hatfield yeah. is dying. He dies on the way into Lordsburg. And it, uh, it, so in a true John Ford moment, he says his dying words, I think he says, tell the judge, but I, I think he means his father. Yeah. That, uh, and then he expires. And you know, John Ford does that. Okay. He will, I, 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 I found this to be true of the searchers as well. John Ford will hint that there's more more to a character's story than he has given us. Well, but he's not going to give it to us. No, no. Well, that's all over this film, and it's especially so in the relationship between Hatfield and Mallory, because they've met before very briefly, yeah. which we see earlier in the film, and we didn't cover this earlier. Where Mallory, where they're at the lunch, they're having lunch in the in the first town where they stop, and Mallory says, "I I know you, don't I?" And 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 Hatfield says, "Well, I served in your father's regiment." Yeah, and so. Uh, interesting. Uh, so he's from Virginia too. Yeah. And we also, he gives her a cup of water from a silver goblet that he carries around, a collapsible goblet. And she recognizes a crest on it. I tried to look this up and it's from, it says, this is from, uh, oh, what's the name of the place? Greenfield Manor or something like that? Yes. Greenfield Manor. I don't know what's implied there. I couldn't find any information on Greenfield Manor. I also could not figure out what they, they were implying something. There was something that he did, something that he was involved in that he does not want to talk about. But again, John Ford is not, not going to go anywhere with it. No, because she says, um, the crest is from Greenfield Manor. You were at Greenfield Manor? And he's like, no, I won this in a wager. But he's clearly lying. He's clearly lying. I, see, I like that about this film. I did, I too, like, I did too. I like that these characters have a history that we really can't even guess at. No. And we don't get to know everything. No, there no. Are still There are still things about these characters that we also don't get to know. And I like that. Oh, I did too. I like, I like, I like all of that. I like, I like uh, the kind of ambiguity that is in a lot of Ford's work, but it's on, it's, it's really in, in play here. So they arrive at Lordsburg and what happens at the first, when does Gatewood well, get it? When does Gatewood get his comeuppance? Pretty close. Uh, <sighs> Almost right away. I think first um, um, they attend to Mrs. Mallory. Um, she she's taken off the stage. Um, there's a wet nurse that takes the baby from from Dallas, and then there's a really great moment. Not not necessarily. <sighs> 
It's a moment I want to talk about because actually uh, earlier uh, in this discussion, I said to you that I didn't think that Lucy Mallory has the redemption that you implied that she does. Okay. And it de- and it depends on how you read the scene. Dallas hands the baby off and Lucy says to Dallas in a very genuine way, Dallas, if there's ever anything I can do for you, just ask. And Dallas seems to kind of imply to her that, you know, that's not going to happen and because of... And 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 Mallory, you know, in a modern film or a feel-good film, Mrs. Mallory would have said, that doesn't matter anymore, Dallas. Yeah. She doesn't say that. She instead has this look of, ex- Mallory herself has this look of acceptance of, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, in, in spite of the fact that I like you, I still, I still cannot lower these, the, the, this barrier that exists, this social barrier that exists between us. Now, that makes us lose a little bit of respect for Mrs. Mallory, but I would contend this is a great moment in the film because this film really reflects reality. There are no, I mean, you can argue that the that we do get a happy ending in the movie, yeah. but we don't get clean character endings. Well, Characters are allowed to stay who they are. And I, I like that. I like that too. What I got out of that scene, and, and we may we may not agree on this, I when Mallory says, if there's ever anything I can do, when when Dallas responds, I got the sense that Dallas was letting her off the hook for well, oh no, she and, definitely was, but Mallory accepted that. She did. But for me, the the moment where there is some progress for Mallory in terms of her moral development, I suppose, is that she, I think she, like you said, genuinely made that offer. Yeah. But I think that Dallas realized what an imposition that would be. Because I, I actually, I actually think Mallory would have followed through with with helping Dallas out. But I think that I think that Dallas, if if Dallas needed something like you know, hey, can I sleep on your couch for a while? I think Mallory would have made some genuine efforts to try and help Dallas out. But I, I got the sense that. Dallas realized that that would have been a, a really big burden on a woman like Mallory. And that's why she let her off the hook. And I think that what you said is that Mallory accepts that. But there is that, there is also that thing that you also alluded to, which, you know, it's, well, I guess that's the reality we live in. Yeah. Well, I'm so, I mean, I don't want to be too hard on Mallory here, though I, get, I you know, I get that, I think you're right. They're all accepting that we live in this world with these strictures. Well, but, 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 but all of them are not. Ringo doesn't accept that. Doc Boone doesn't accept that. I'm not even sure that Curly accepts that. Well, but we, but, we, but we, Lucy, Ma- Lucy Mallory definitely decides in that moment that she's going to go with the flow. And yeah. I mean, we can leave it at that. I, mean, yeah. I, 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 I don't dislike her character, but I do think that the film definitely wants to, that in this moment, John Ford really created a very real moment because actually in the real world sometimes people don't change exactly sometimes sometimes people they may soften a bit but it may not make them a different person i actually appreciated that i guess i don't want to say that i liked it i liked lucy mallory i liked dallas i wanted them to get along yeah. I appreciated that the film still kept that going because yeah. that's not because I wanted it to keep going, but because that's that's the reality that we all run into. You know, sometimes people don't change. I mean, to me, the, the, the best thing that could have happened there, though, is that 
and this would have been a, a, a point in Mallory's favor in terms of moral progress, is had, had they stayed in that town together, their interactions would not have been the, the judgmental. It would yeah. have changed a bit. It would have been more friendly. They would have been cool and they would have been distant to each other forever. But, right. but Mallory would never again have been as judgmental or mean to Dallas. Right, right. I agree. I think, I think that's a nice thing. But like you said, I also I also like how Ford implies that it, it is the world they live in. And so everybody's happy. I don't remember what Gatewood does, but he steps in it. <laughs> oh, um, he basically reveals who he is. Yeah. Oh, you didn't you didn't think they'd have the the lines fixed and they arrest him on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Gatewood, that's your name. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the sheriffs there had come to kind of come in curly for catching Ringo. Yeah. But then, but then they got this, like, really rich prize. Yeah, though, Henry Gatewood. Ah, uh, yeah, who had the $50,000. And at that point, Ringo asked Curly, hey, can, can, I, to, yeah. can, I, can I walk um, Dallas back to her house or to the place where she's staying? Well, and he, uh, and he also asked for, what, 20 minutes? Ten minutes or ten minutes, because because he says, "Look, I prom- I gave you my word. Just let me do this, and then you can take me in." But and Curly Curly assents to it. He does, but I also so here's here's the question. Um, Curly hands him his rifle back. Yeah. And Wayne says, "I was not entirely honest with you earlier. I had three rounds left." Yeah. And he loads it up and. So in Lordsburg are also the plumbers, and when they find out Ringo's in town, they send everybody off. They they like the what's his name Jake Plummer or Henry Plummer Bob Plummer Luke 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 Plummer <laughs> um, he sends off for his brothers right because they they Ringo's in town and they know that there's going to be trouble does Curly know there's going to be trouble oh I think so okay I thought so too I just wanted to make sure that Curly was an adult but but there's a really nice moment where Dallas and uh, and Ringo walk back to where she's staying which I guess is where the the women of the night stay and she expects to be rejected by him yeah she doesn't want him to walk with her and he's like well no i asked you to marry me earlier and uh so he walks her to the to the place and she was like well i gave you a chance to leave and uh and then he basically says what he what he covered with curly earlier he's like look uh, i gotta go to jail for a year <laughs> but curly's gonna take you to my ranch so and she's like you still want to and she's shocked that he still wants to be with her but he had told her earlier in the film i believe uh at uh, at the innkeeper's place where she said you don't know anything about me yeah. he said i know i know all i need to know that's right and 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 he meant it yeah and, and, and i think we tend in watching the film we believe him but she doesn't she she never believes him until that moment well yeah so then he makes his way back but there's a really cool scene where the doc goes into the saloon where oh, I love this. Plumber is Luke Plumber is drinking and Doc comes in and asks for a whiskey and he drinks it and he has this really weird staring contest with Luke. If uh, you if you walk out in that street with that shotgun, I'll have you indicted for murder. Well, because because Luke asks for a shotgun after his brothers arrive. Right. He roughly takes the shotgun away and shatters a bunch of glasses, and that's when Doc steps in his way as he's leaving the place. Because it wouldn't be considered a fair fight, I guess, in the laws of Arizona. Yes, yeah. Uh, a three-on-one, okay, but if a guy's got a shotgun, <laughs> everybody goes to jail. <laughs> Um, but that's when Doc Doc steps up and right in front of the guy and is like he says what you said and uh, Luke puts the shotgun down and says well we'll square up with you later and he leaves and the Doc looks at the bartender he says don't ever let me do something like that again <laughs> <laughs> that's right 
now, when when uh, when I saw that on the big screen with the crowd, I, I watched it with that line got a huge laugh. Well, it's it's a good line. It's a good line. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Mitchell, uh, that's his name, right? Yeah, Thomas Mitchell. Thomas Mitchell delivers it perfectly. Um, so there's some the, the brothers are walking through the town. One of the brothers, one of something that gives me some hope for Ringo as they're move as the Plummer brothers and Ringo are moving to their conflict, their final conflict. Because up to this point, we they've been built up as being total badasses, right? Right. Couple things gave me hope. When yeah. Luke Plummer gets up from the card table, his hand is aces and eights. Yes, yes, yes. And for yeah. listeners who don't know, that's the dead man's hand. Jason, do you know yeah. about the dead man's hand? Go ahead, explain it. You'll have to explain it, but yeah. I'm yeah. This is allegedly this is allegedly the hand that Bill Hickok had before he was gunned down. Like, oh, aces and eights. Maybe maybe this is Luke's day. And so <laughs> then when he and his brothers are walking to try and find Ringo, there's a black cat that runs yeah. away. from from Ringo and uh, one of the brothers takes a shot at it and misses and the other brother who doesn't seem to be entirely sane laughs and says ha, I was four feet away and he couldn't hit it <laughs> and I'm like well, maybe Ringo has a shot <laughs> then they see each other and it's this really long it's this long shot dark shadows yeah. um, and they approach each other John has three rounds in his gun uh, Ringo has three rounds in his gun it's very tense and oh gosh I'm getting chills just thinking about this scene and then just as you know something's going to happen John Wayne dives to the ground aiming his gun at the people and it cuts away <laughs> yeah we cut back to Dallas and we hear the gunshots yeah we don't see the fight right we don't know what happened until John Wayne's character emerges ah first we see luke return to the oh that's right sorry, sorry yeah to the saloon and uh he he appears i i suppose it's to make us believe that oh i guess he won yeah but, uh he he hits the floor pretty violently and we realize that he's he's actually dead and then we see that the kid survived and he's returned to dallas um before that though Everybody's been expecting this fight for a long time, right? Yeah. And uh, there's a really funny moment where uh, the local newspaper man goes, comes running in to his presses and he says, quick, set the headline for tomorrow. The Ringo Kid killed in the streets of Lordsburg. Others, to, others killed were, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, everybody expects Ringo to die in this in this fracas. Which, which, by the way, that's uh, something uh, John Ford was very interested in the media yep. uh, and, and how the media kind of crafted our perspective on on history. And so yeah. that's that's kind of a little moment where you know uh, he, he definitely kind of flashed that you know where the the they're ready to, to deliver the news but they've already decided what it is yeah 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 you know they just got to wait until it's over to, to actually print it well so and we get to Ringo and Dallas reunited and she's happy and then we find Curly and Buck arrive right and they're like oh Curly's obviously very happy that Ringo survived and then they basically decide that Ringo doesn't need to spend another year in prison Curly yeah. unilaterally says get out of here uh, well, actually, um, they offer for him to ride with Dallas for a little ways. Oh, that's right. And, th and then they pick up rocks and throw them at the horses, which was actually something that was done throughout the film that I thought was kind of dumb, actually. Yeah. Like, like when they were going across the river, they're throwing rocks at the horses. Like, what's that going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, 
you, you know, I've never um, done it, so I don't recommend anybody do it. Right, right. But but then uh, when you see the final scene, you see that that was just kind of a Ford used that as a setup for the final scene because when they throw the rocks at the horse, it's very obvious to anybody watching the film that uh, Curly's letting him go, and then they they cheer as they go off. I I actually I. I love the ending of this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, um, again, the thread that we have followed all the way through is kind of summed up, uh, I believe I believe Doc says, they've escaped was the burdens of civilization. Yeah. Or something. Well, and, I know, I know uh, Ringo's Ranch is in Mexico. In Mexico, and they will now be away from everybody else. Yeah. Everybody that tormented Dallas, everybody that tormented the kid, including Curly, yeah. um, they will now be free from. They will be free from the temperance ladies they will be free from oppressive bankers they will be a f free from the u.s military they will be free from geronimo they will be free from all of that and they and curly and and doc are absolutely elated that they get to have that that they get to have that happen and i think that 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 final that final scene kind of kind of captures everything that the film is actually about Yep. The film is about what Doc said earlier, you know, that we are the victims of social of something called social prejudice. There's kind of this desire. And, and, and even those who are watching the movie, we have this desire to see all of that go away. And the kid in Dallas, they actually get to get on the, 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 the wagon and ride into the sunset, literally, and, and get away from it. They don't have to be part of that anymore. Doc's going to be away from it in five years or so anyway. Probably, yeah. Doc is going to be so dead. <laughs> Um, his liver's gonna give out, yeah. Yeah, that was not a man who was living with longevity as his aim. No, well, but you know, I, I have to say, I I love the final line. I I adore the final line of this movie. They're both cheering, and and the kid and Dallas have have disappeared into the distance. And Curly says to the doc and says, "Oh, doc, I'll, I'll buy you a drink." And doc just says, "Well, just one." <laughs> yeah. And to me, I think that is as great an ending line to a movie as, uh, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, well, which is the, the ending of Casablanca. I think that is a great ending line. I loved the ending of this movie. Well, I think that that's right. And I think it, it's important. And it, so that line works because of everything that's happened before that line. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you can't just have a great line like that without having built the groundwork for it. So that's the movie, guys. Something that Jason and I have talked about a lot with Ford films, and, and I kind of want to get into this a little bit, is sometimes Ford doesn't get human interaction right. Sometimes his humor is a little off-key. That's the big problem I have with Ford, that his humor is off-key. I didn't... I thought I thought that was perfect in this film. Oh, not only is it perfect in this film, I mean, this film stands... In terms of, in terms of action humor, this film stands way ahead of most of its peers at the time. There's even the little moment when Dallas says goodbye to um, Mr. Peacock, Reverend Peacock, and because he does survive uh, the arrow, and they're they're going. I was so relieved that he survived. Oh, I, me too. I was like, oh my god, I'm so happy that he's alive. Anyway, yeah, no, he, he's he's a great character, but they're carrying him. Good. They're carrying him away, and and he invites her to come to Kansas City, Kansas, and you know, you know, whenever you're in Kansas City, Kansas, be sure to drop by, and we'll feed you dinner, and she, and, and then. She gets his name wrong, <laughs> and he just says "peacock." Uh, like every every comedy beat in this movie is just precious. 
It is. No, it's, this is, I think, now I haven't seen as many Ford films as you have, but I found that all of that was great. The only thing I found off key was that musical number by the hotel proprietor's wife. And that I could have been, if it had just been her singing without it sounding like she was on a recording studio stage. Yeah. I would have been I would have been fine with it, but it seemed too much like a musical number, like you might see in a Roy Rogers kind of. I get that, you know. But that it doesn't throw me out of the film. It just, you do you will notice it, but I don't know. This feels to me of all of the four films I have seen, this one feels almost like his perfect film. I agree. I actually feel like that. Maybe you don't know this. Uh, before uh, Orson Welles made Citizen Kane, he watched this movie ten times. I because, read. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I mean, he he felt this was the best Hollywood film that had been produced up to that time. And I do know that um, when asked in the 1960s who his favorite American director was, uh, or no, he was asked to name his top three, the top three best directors in American history. And Orson Welles said, John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. (laughs) And and, and he said that um, when Ford, I I can't quote it exactly, but when Ford is is in top form and is doing everything right, you get a sense of what the earth is made of. (laughs) And in this film, I see that. Oh, without doubt. What did you think of the decision to cut away from the duel that we've been building up to for the whole movie? I see. I I love that. Well, first of all, I love the fact that there was a duel. You didn't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you know, the film kind of stood well on its own, but then we still had the kind of, you know, the shootout in the street and, you know, everyone, oh, there's going to be a shootout and such and such. So I, I, I love the shootout. I love the cutaway. Uh, I think all of that worked well. The reason that I like it is because this film, even though it has great stunts in it, is a character-driven film. It's a very dramatic film. It's what John Ford wanted to do. He wanted to make a film... Uh, uh, about drama and characters nobody thought that could be done this 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 movie nails all of that it does that sounds a little bit like your verdict you want to add anything to your verdict is there or is that it is that is or do you think that's it oh no i i uh and the verdict uh for many years max and i have discussed uh what the greatest western is of all time and i think that i'm ready to have a settled position that stagecoach directed by john ford is the winner and still champion after all these years. This film does everything that you want a Western to do. It has great characters. It has great dialogue. It has incredible stunts. It has a fantastic cast, maybe one of the best cast, maybe the best cast in any Western in the history of Hollywood. And it really does comedy very well also. I think any modern viewer can watch this movie, and you could probably sense that I was going to say something like this from all the gushing that took place uh, earlier, but anybody, any modern viewer can watch this movie and just be uh, massively entertained. It's it's a fun movie. It's a movie with incredible depth. It has incredible stunt work, and it's from 1939. I would actually, on a very short list of the great movies that people don't watch anymore, this has got to be near the top. 
because there's you know, there's lots of great mo- old movies that people do watch. Everyone watches Casablanca. Everyone watches Citizen Kane. This, Citizen Kane. All these older films. Um, Stagecoach doesn't always doesn't always get watched, and I think that it should be. I think this should be at the top of anyone's list. This is, I think, the greatest movie that no one watches anymore, but everyone should. Wow, you did live up to your promise about having a verdict that was as dramatic as the movie. Thank you. I don't really have anything to add to that. I'm not sure I'm on board with the greatest Western ever made, though I don't think that that's an outlandish statement. (laughs) You would accept that. The podcast might have ended. (laughs) Uh, But I guess for me, my verdict is this is, I can't add anything to what Jason said. I agree with almost all of it. And I'm on the fence about his greatest Western ever made. But this is a foundational piece of American cinema. Influential. And I think everybody should watch it for that as well. And that's it. That's all I got. That's Stagecoach, 1939. Go see it, guys. What are we doing next? Your turn. My turn. Um, Let's see here. He-Man 2. No, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I had something in mind. What was it? This movie kind of blew me away. Honestly, I I have been struggling with what to do next after Stagecoach. What about... Do you want to do something modern? Do you want to do something... I'll do anything. Captain America, the first Avenger? (laughs) Really? Why not? Sure. All right. That's the next one, folks. Captain America, the first Avenger. We might do a bonus episode of Captain America 1994, but I don't. I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, so, share us on all the platforms: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you guys share stuff. Reach out to us on uh, Lord Movies at Gmail, uh, Lord Movies 39 at gmail.com. See you around. Bye bye. <laughs>